Hi, everyone. I wanted to take some time today to talk a little bit about the R&D tax credit. So with all of the Section 174 changes that we've talked about this year to research and experimental expensing, there's also been a lot of confusion and a lot of questions about R&E versus R&D and the R&D tax credit. A lot of folks coming forward who have never filed for the R&D tax credit, wondering if that's something that could be advantageous for them, wondering if that can help offset these changes. And so I thought it was about time we bring in an expert on the topic. So today I am joined by Jonathan Cardella. He is the founder and CEO of Strike Tax Advisory. You've probably seen Stephen Comstock from his team talking about Section 174 and R&D tax credits on Twitter and LinkedIn. Stephen has been a member of our group and our, our movement um, basically almost since the very beginning. Started talking to him back in March. And so as I've talked to him about the questions about the R&D tax credit, he suggested that we bring Jonathan on board. So thank you so much for joining me today, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to jump right into um, some of the the many questions that I have received from people about the R&D tax credit. But for starters, I think we should just start with what is the R&D tax credit and what kind of activities and costs and expenses are covered under the R&D tax credit? Well, the R&D tax credit is formerly known as Internal Revenue Code Section 41, which is the credit for increasing research activities. Um, I know that doesn't mean probably much to, to anyone, so I will break it down in layman's terms um, or in my own words. Um, this is a credit that's really greatly misunderstood. While it is the credit for increasing research activities, it's commonly known as the R&D tax credit. It's been around since about 1981, but it's changed quite a bit over the years and was made permanent by Congress more recently uh, in the mid-teens. Uh, and it's still misunderstood. And I think as a result, a lot of companies are missing out on the opportunity to take the credit. But in a nutshell, when a company is developing a product for commercial purposes, right, to to, to to make money, to bring it to the, to the market, whether it's selling it, leasing it, renting it, licensing it, that, you know, that doesn't really matter or whether it's offering subscriptions or whether it's even a service that might be enabled by some technology. These companies, they're, they're touching the sciences and engineering disciplines, whether or not they, their staff is uh, credentialed or certified that triggers sort of two of the four part test for the R&D tax credit. So the first one is it's for a commercial purpose. And the second one is that it's involving the hard sciences. And so the key determinant after that is whether or not there is uncertainty that needs to be eliminated in order to get this product or process, or it might be considered a project by the company to market or, or in production, so to speak. So is there is there uncertainty? You know, it's usually a technical uncertainty or scientific uncertainty. And so, what does that mean? So, in in my mind, <laughs> when you're building software, especially if it's not in production yet, uh, as one example, 
And, you know, naturally developers are using trial and error to write code, run it, test it, and go back to the drawing board and tweak that code and then run it and, and test it and repeat that process. That is, that's essentially trial and error. And that is a process of elimination of uncertainty. And what we do as experts is look at the sort of endeavors a company undertakes and look for that process of eliminating uncertainty, however they do it. And if we can document that, then what we can do is we can qualify a substantial portion of the salaries, both W-2, potentially contractor salaries, the supplies, such as the cloud computing they might be using. Uh, on the other extreme side of the spectrum, you know, we, we've had distilleries and breweries, right? So when they're working on, you know, their formula or their process to produce their wine, their beer, their spirit, or or their energy drink, as another example, there's a lot of um, testing and trial and error that goes into place. So they 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 use supplies. Uh, a lot of that gets thrown out, right? It's not production supplies, but it's all of the effort and costs and wages that went into producing that new product line or that new beverage that we can qualify as R&D if a substantial portion of those expenses were really spent on eliminating the uncertainty required to commercialize that idea effectively. Now, I know that's a really long answer, so we may, <laughs> may want to re-summarize re, uh, that. Um, but that's really at the heart of it, uh, if that makes any sense. So it sounds like for software companies, in a lot of cases, provided you have the proper documentation and evidence for it, developing a new product in general might qualify for the R&D tax credit. Are there also cases where software companies have, say, made improvements to existing products and received the tax credit so what is a new product is what we're what you know what becomes at at issue with software each new version each new build of the product effectively is a different product right so you know every time ios pushes out an update uh arguably that's a new product that that version has new features or significant changes to features and it's not in production until you push it out onto everybody's device or make it available and so naturally in software development, usually you are doing version builds or, you know, even if they're more minor version builds. And so we can qualify that as a new product effectively or as, as expenses potentially. What you, you know, what doesn't qualify is the sort of like simple patching of bugs on a production product. So in theory, if the bug is obvious, it's simple to fix the, the, the products in production, even though it takes technical uh, disciplines and resources, technically that sort of activity usually does not qualify. Whereas building a new feature or feature set, it's going to usually be pushed out as part of a new build to that software. And so it's a discrete update. And so usually we can capture that that's those sort of expenses. But I wanted to kind of like confuse things more by saying that if we simply make that, that software run 50 milliseconds faster, that project in its own probably could qualify. So it sounds like even small changes can sometimes qualify. Yeah. I mean, just optimizing an existing process or product can can qualify. Literally making a function run faster likely will qualify, you know, because there is uncertainty typically in that sort of work and it is a trial and error and it is technical and it is for commercialization and it's going to be in a new build of that product. So um, yeah, typically we can qualify that. 
But what I'm getting at is that it is the wages of the folks in-house who are doing this sort of work. So think of the developers, think of their managers, think of the people supporting the developers. It could be project managers, there could be designers involved, there could be assistants, there's the CTO, there might be a founder that is supervising and overseeing this. There could be outsourced contractors or agencies. And there is going to be usually like if you're training AI models, as an example, there's going to be a lot of um, computational cycles that are utilized not for production, but for, but to support that trial and error process, right. Of um, training the model as another example. So, but it's not just software. I mean, this is everything from people doing CAD drawings to architects to engineering firms. But there's another key ingredient that I forgot to mention to you, which is simply that the taxpayer must take the financial risk and stand to gain the rewards of the research that's being conducted. So if the research is funded, say, by another party, arguably that then that that's the taxpayer that might qualify. So what I'm getting at is that just because I'm an architect, if I'm doing work for someone else, it may be their tax credits, not mine, depending on who took the financial risk and who gets the fruits of the, of the research, as far as if there's any contract involved, like contract research. And so it sounds like what you're saying is that if say I have a freelance software development company and I build a product for someone else under a contract that then becomes their IP and their product to commercialize, then my activity probably doesn't qualify. But if I have, say, received venture funding for my own company and I would have the benefits of the product, even though I have investors in this scenario, then you would still qualify. Is that kind of the difference between doing contract That's work? Generally versus, correct. But there's, yeah. There's a little more nuance to it than that. So let me add to it. So in the scenario where you're a startup, sure you have investors, but the startup's the taxpayer, the startup's taking the financial risk, the startup owns the IP, which, which can be different by the way, than the um, fruits of the research. There, there can be some nuance there. So for example, like you get know-how on how to perform that research, which is a fruit, whereas traditionally companies might think of the IP as just the software. But yes, generally you're correct, but I would say that that doesn't mean a contractor can't potentially be the recipient of the R&D tax credit though. Say there was a contract in which I'm the contractor, the software development agency, I'm offering you a fixed bid, the startup, I'm going to produce software for you. You're going to own the software, but I'm going to own some of the rights to the findings and the research or significant rights to the know-how. Um, and I'm going to give it to you on a fixed bid. So I'm taking the financial risk. So in that scenario, it's not as clear and it requires a close analysis of the contracts and what actually happened to make a determination as to who really had the most risk and rights and who deserves the credit. Um, so it does become more nuanced. Uh, but in the case of the startup, that hires people as W-2 employees. And typically there's a mention assignment and everything with those employees. And it's clear that the startup took the risk and owns all of the fruits of the R&D, whether that's by, by W-2 or 1099, same thing in a contract, like in your scenario. So I just wanted to clarify by saying, just because it's a contractor doesn't mean the rights and um, rewards can't best with the contractor, if that makes yeah, sense. That makes sense. And but so- and if your startup, sorry, it was a pastor entity though, even though the company is a taxpayer and gets the credits, the credits would pass through to the investors if it's a pastor entity, such as a partnership or an S-corp. 
um, whereas the credits would benefit only the company in the case of a C-Corp. So the company would get a tax break essentially before it, say, distributed dividends or retained earnings uh, in the case of a C-Corp, whereas in an S-Corp or partnership or traditional um, LLC, we have members. In those instances, yeah, the credits actually pass through the investors and benefit usually their income generated from that business. So you mentioned before how one of the pieces of evidence that companies use to get the R&D tax credit is contracts and proving you know who gets the 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 fruit of the research getting down to brass tax a little bit what are the kinds of evidence that software companies usually need to provide for the credit are we talking you know github issues and 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 conversations are server logs like 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 is it is it simply a, a written write up of of the research that was done or do people have to have timesheets? Like, what, like, what are those specific things that people need to produce um, in order to prove the activity? Sure. Um, well, for one, nowadays, whether you're so with the R&D tax credit, you can, you know, if you pay taxes. So first of all, you can look back at least three years federally, sometimes even more on a state level, because you can you can get both federal and state credits which offset both your federal and state um, income tax typically, as well as other types of federal taxation that we can talk about, such as your payroll tax. But that said, the, sorry, <laughs> I got a tangent, Michelle, what your question again? About the kinds of evidence that companies produce um, and, and specifically about software companies. So are, are you know, are you looking at right. GitHub activity or, you know, written write-ups. The, the yeah. bar to take the credit is a bit higher if you're amending your returns to get refunds from taxes you've paid in the past, which is a possibility. But generally speaking, we need to understand that each for each calendar year uh, or fiscal year, tax year, we need to understand the the type of projects that the company basically undertook that year that could qualify, what their purpose was, who was involved in them, both W two and ten ninety nine, right? The, the actual people, and how that you know essentially what they were paid uh, under how those con whether the contracts were were W two or ten ninety nine. If they were ten ninety nine, we need to analyze them. And that's just on the surface. You know, we need to look at tax returns and stuff. But as to the actual project documentation, which is what I think you're asking about, it's typically the stuff stored in Jira or your project management system. If you have a time tracking system. That would be invaluable because usually it ties people to, to tasks and efforts and projects. But oftentimes we can recreate this. Sometimes we've used email inboxes. Sometimes we we rely on interviewing employees and founders and uh, executives at the company and some combination thereof. But it's really the gold standard is what we call contemporaneous documentation, which would be the sort of things like the project plans and research notes and results that were captured or, or kicked off of the processes that ran at the at that time when the research was conducted. That's why the sort of like task tickets, sprints that might be in a project management system are invaluable. GitHub is is, is a goldmine of this data if a company is using that. You know, we have things there like we can, you know, typically there's some sort of a GitHub flow or process that companies use to move co code, you know, from a development state to, say, a staging 
and, and a production environment potentially, or different code branches that might have those significances. And if we can understand that, there usually is a lot of inherent sort of documentation or, or that exists in logs and what have you with respect to, you know, the, the trial and error process that we talked about earlier that companies conducted, like there's usually a lot of digital footprints that we can leverage. Um, sometimes that's necessary, you know, it really depends on the, the complexity, the amount of money you're talking about also dictates the level of documentation, but ultimately we really have to tie the projects, the people, the expenses, if there were supplies and the uncertainty in each one of those projects, as, as well as that process of experimentation we talked about and their commercial purpose, we need to tie that all together to do our analysis and ultimately provide final documentation that documents all of that so that it's quote unquote audit ready. Right. And, and in there was actually something that is very good news for companies who are struggling with the 174 changes this year and the, and taking a financial hit as a result, which is that you mentioned that companies can file for the R and D tax credit for previous years, even if they have already completed those returns. Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. The federal code says that a company can look back three tax years from their present tax year. Um, you know, typically after three years, you can't really amend things or change things. And the three, the, what starts the clock is a little bit technical, but oftentimes it's when you filed that return three years ago starts the clock, right? And everybody files, you know, not everybody files on the date it's due. So I think it's the actual like postmark date of your tax return three years ago that you're looking at and you have a three-year window from there. So you can look back, but each year in theory, if you're more than three years old, you're losing a year of potential R&D tax credit or qualified expenses that you can get credits on. The thing is, there is there's the tax code itself, like section 41 that we talked about, but then there's case law. And there's case law that says that companies can go back to inception if they've never paid, you know, if all income tax, if all years are open, meaning they haven't paid income tax yet, they haven't hit profitability on a tax basis yet that they can actually go back potentially to inception and capture all of their expenses. And that's, you know, so if you catch a company or if a company catches this opportunity right before they become profitable for the first tax year, it can be a massive um, tax savings that they can harvest all at once and they can apply, uh, you know, a good portion to the current tax year, their first year of profitability, and then they carry those credits forward for up to 20 more years. So typically you look back three or more years and carry forward 20 years once you get the credits. And that's that's the beauty of it. It sounds like it can be a very valuable tax credit for people to get um, and certainly very helpful this year as a lot of entrepreneurs are feeling a bit panicked, um, to put it mildly, about their tax situation. Um, Agreed. I mean, and I think so... taxes, sorry to cut you off, but if they pay taxes the last few if the last few years and they had R and D and they didn't realize it, they can they stand to get a large refund, right? So, like this is, this is not just a you know a reduction in future taxes, but a potential immediate source of cash for some of those companies. Yeah, and and that really gets to my my last and and quite frankly the biggest question that I that I hear from people about this is can the R and D tax credit completely offset the section 174 changes um it's possible um definitely because of the fact that the 174 changes took effect for for the first time in tax year 22 but yet we can look back three or more years sometimes all the way to inception so potentially the credits could be used to offset the entire increase from 174 but it really depends on each company's tax situation 
174 is pretty interesting, but for most companies, it's definitely increasing taxable income or creating uh, an income tax situation where there is no actual income, right? So you can have a situation where a company does a lot of R&D and it has some revenue uh, and it's losing money on a cash basis, but when but under 174, because the taxpayer now doesn't have the option to expense the R&D expenses in the present year, in fact, this year it can only take about 10%. So in 22, if you did 2 million in R&D, you might only be able to expense 200,000. But at the same time, say you had 2 million in revenue and you know you were in a zero tax position because you had, or negative because you had some other expenses. Now, because you can't book 1.8 million of your, of your R&D expenses, you actually look like you have income, let's say a million dollars, or in this case, you know, it could be a million dollars plus in this case. And so now say you have you know, 300,000 or whatever it is in, um, in income tax due federally, uh, it is very conceivable in a scenario like that, that we would have more than 300,000 in tax credits because we look, you know, this company has been spending 2 million a year and we look back three years or more. Uh, and so in that scenario, they may be able to entirely offset those 174 taxes or the income tax that results from 174 and still have credits left over. But it really depends on how much revenue are they generating? How much other expenses do they have? And then whether they're doing onshore, offshore R&D, and how much and how much they actually have in R and D expenses, and how long they've been doing that for. So there's just so many variables involved that it's really hard to answer, but it is a possibility. Yes. Well, I think we should probably end on that encouraging note. And you know, I am you know personally still very hopeful that we can get this 174 mess solved by the end of the year. Um, of course, we know that Congress doesn't fix anything um, or really do anything until they absolutely have to at the absolute last minute. But, you know, there could be companies who are in a situation who now realize that they have qualified for R&D tax credits or potentially qualified for them for the entire company's existence. And so while 2022 may have a difficult cash position, once they get those credits going um, and 174 is, you know, knock on wood fixed um, going forward and, of course, retroactive to 2022, they could potentially be in a in, in a better position in the future. Definitely, I mean, it always makes sense to to, to get your tax credits. Um, you know, one seventy four is a totally different uh, piece of tax code. It doesn't, you know, the R and D tax credit is still there. It's virtually un, unchanged. Uh, definitely not directly changed by one seventy four. And the you know the, the the thing that you need to realize is that one seventy four takes a much broader definition of R and D uh, of the actual expenses, right? Um, so in 41, where they're giving you a credit, they call R&D one thing and they really whittle it down to a, a subset of your R&D expenses effectively. Whereas in 174, it's beyond your R&D expenses. It's an extension of that, I, I would argue. It's any expense incident of this sort of software development or R&D of any kind. So, you know, you're talking about uh, building expenses and rent, and mortgages and depreciation of equipment. And just it takes a really, really broad broad definition. So your 174 expenses are going to be more than your 41 expenses. But the thing is, whether you take R&D credits or not, doesn't affect really directly whether you have 174 expenses. You know, it, 174 expenses based on whether or not you're you're doing R&D and the government's gone as far as to say any software development is 174. So it's an interesting position. It's sort of like they've created a double standard and uh, it definitely it will increase taxes for a number of companies. But yes, I mean, one of the best remedies to it is to make sure that you have all your tax credits, your R&D tax credits to offset it. That, that's pretty much my only and best advice. 
So if people listening um, are wondering how they can get started with R&D tax credits, where would you suggest they go next? Well, uh, you know, obviously you can read up on them about, on the IRS website. I wouldn't say it's unbiased though, because, you know, they, they have their own angle on things. And, you know, at strikethax.com, we uh, work hard to get the the latest news out there to everybody and try to break it down into understandable terms. But as to the credit, you know, there's a number of providers that will help companies provide the credit. The problem is that, you know, they're usually charging fees up front or upon delivery of the credits. And companies aren't sure if they can use them, when they can use them, if the government will accept them. And so a lot of companies don't take the credit because there's a risk involved, you know, in capital loss by going after the credit. And the credit only has value if it's usable and, uh, you know, can give you more of an economic benefit than the cost to get the credit. So for that reason, a lot of small businesses haven't taken the credit traditionally. And that's why we came to market because we basically work with companies, educate them, identify the opportunities, help for them to take credits, value them, and then we pay to do the work. So they don't, they're not exposed to that capital loss risk. And then we only get a fee when they actually receive a tangible economic benefit could be 20 years in the future in theory. So that's a pretty unique proposition. And the market is pay on utilization, not receipt of the credits, which is a nice asset on your balance sheet. And so um, for that reason, I recommend that companies attempt to hire and qualify at strike tax. You know, we don't take every single company because sometimes it isn't, you know, a smart opportunity for them. And we advise them on that and, you know, when it will be. But, you know, I, I would just say, make sure that if you hire a company to get the credits, that not only that you hire a reputable company, but that you can really benefit from the credits more than the cost to obtain them, you know, significantly more. Uh, because there are situations where it may not uh, be lucrative. Yeah, that makes sense. Like like anything, make sure to shop around and look at you know look at your current tax provider, but also look to other sources and providers as well to make sure you're getting the best deal on. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I will have links to you and. Um, Strike tax, um, as well as the IRS, um, in the show notes for anyone who wants to learn more about this, which should be everybody listening if you haven't taken the R&D tax credit so far. So, Jonathan Cardella, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Huge thanks to all of our listeners who've become software socialites and support our show. Chris from Chipper CI the daringly handsome Kevin Griffin, and Mike from Gently Used Domains, who has a nice personality, Dave from Recut, Max of Online or Not, Stefan from Talk to Stefan, Brendan Andrade of Brightbits, Team Tuple, Alex Hillman from The Tiny MBA, Rami from Hovercode and Rocket Gems, Jane and Benedict from UserList, Kendall Morgan, Ruben Gomez of Signwell, Corey Haynes of Swipewell, Mike Wade of Crowd Sentry, Nate Ritter of Roomsteals, Anna Mast of SubscribeSense, Jeff Roberts from Outsetta, Justin Jackson, Megamaker, Jack Ellis and Paul Jarvis from Fathom Analytics, Matthew from Appointment Reminder, Andrew Culver at Bullet Train, John Coster, Alex of Corso Systems, Richard from Stunning, Josh the Annoyingly Pragmatic Founder, Ben from ConsentKit, John from Credo and Editor Ninja, Cam Sloan, Michael Copper of Nusi Proposals, Chris from URL Box, Callie of Toslet, Greg Park from Trait Lab, Adam from Rails Autoscale, 
Lana and Alex from Recapsi, Joe Mazzalotti of RailsDevs.com, Proud Mama from Applenet LLC, Anna from Cradle, Monsef from Ruby on Mac, Steve of Be Inclusive, Simon Bennett of Snapshooter Backups, Josh Smith of Keyhero.io, Jesper Christensen of Form Backend, Matthew of Works Cited, Chris of JetBoost.io, Daryl Shannon of Docomatic, Larabels, a community for Larabelle developers underrepresented due to their gender, Brendan from Feederloop, Pascal from Sharpen.page, Lynn Romick from Convini, Arvid Call, James Sowers from Castaway.fm, Jessica Malnick, Damian Moore of Audio Audit Podcast Checker, Eldon from Nodal Studios, Mitchell Davis from RecruitKit.